the reading today, the scripture, is going to be 1 Peter 1, 3 to 12. Starting in verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith and salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that will follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told, told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. morning. Um, today we begin a sermon series through the rest of this month, April, and into May on First and Second Peter, which is entitled Stand Firm. Um, and so over the next weeks, uh, Wes, Corey, and myself will be discussing and comparing what standing firm might mean, what it would look like. And so along the way, uh, part of the discussion and, and part of what we'll be presenting would be reasons for standing firm, some of the challenges that we face in standing firm, and biblical encouragement for standing firm. And so as, as we look at First Peter right here, it, Peter begins this first book prior to what Corey read in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, by calling to the pilgrims, the, the sojourners, the travelers, the exiles, and the refugees. So basically all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, who've been scattered into the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you take a look at that, that would be basically the northern region of Turkey is kind of what that specifically would be. But speaking and calling to all of those that have been scattered, um, that are out in the world. And in verse 2, Peter greets all of these individuals and us by saying, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. There's a blessing that he is giving as he starts. And then with what Corey started, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the NIV puts an exclamation point at the end of that. And I think it's very fitting. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's that type of statement. It, it's a bold statement saying this is what we are going to be doing. Now I follow that up with a question because many times, you know, if a statement is made, um, there's frequently a question that, that all parents love to hear from their children growing up. You know, the question that we want our kids to ask but if they ask it repeatedly over and over again, then we start getting frustrated with it. But why? <laughs> why? Pra praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, what's the reason um, for that? What's the basis of that? Why is God to be praised? Because we, we've gone through life enough that we know frustrations, we know challenges, there, there's pain, there's persecution, we experience failure. But why do you believe in God? Why do we place our trust there? Why is God to be praised? And the nice thing, Peter continues right into verse 3. He says, and gives us an answer, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. So Peter doesn't mince words. He, he, he goes into further explanation later, but he gives an answer very quickly. And so in, in that verse, Peter's pointing us to a strong and powerful claim to have hope. And many Bible commentators refer to Peter as the apostle of hope. And a lot of the components of hope and the reasons to have hope, that's what we're going to be discussing and talking about over the next months. Hope is defined as an eager and confident expectation. It's not just wishful. It's not whimsical. Hope, and Peter puts another word in front of this, it's a living hope. It's deeply rooted. It's active. It is invigorating. It anticipates. It is not idle. That's what Peter is calling us to have. It's a hope that is seeking God's will throughout our days and weeks that we live out on this earth. And I, I want to look at that, that idea of hope. That, that's what our focus is. That hope is a huge part of why we stand firm. And so what is our hope for? What's it based on? Uh, if we continue on, I'm going to end up looking at all the different verses through here. Um, not necessarily in order, but in verse 4. God promised that his children, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where we have an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. That's what our hope is based on, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this inheritance, this is a promise of eternal life, is, if you take a look at the end of verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. It's preserved. It's guarded. So our hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and the end game is heaven. Living eternally with the Father and Jesus. That's where we're planning to spend eternity. In John 14, 
uh, verses 2 and 3, Jesus spoke of the promise of eternal life as well. He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's the promise that Jesus Christ himself gave us. I've got rooms prepared for you. Now, if I go back to 1 Peter 1, go back to verse 5, there's another promise within this verse. Now, verse 4 ends with you. And if you take a look at verse 5, it's followed up with who. So, so reference is, you know, to you, and then, then verse 5 starts with who, and so it's continuing on referring to you and me, all believers in Christ, as being the ones that are shielded by God's power through faith. So not only is heaven preserved, that promise, but you are guarded. He is covering us. He is shielding us. He is protecting us in that setting. And, and the word for shielded in this verse, real refers to a garrison of protection. And this word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's just here. And it refers to a fortress. A fortress under incredibly heavy military guard and watch. And so Peter was considering, and, and he knew the people of his day, he knows us, we're weak, we are tempted, we fail many, many times over and over again, and we're surrounded by those temptations. And so we need and we have that power available to us, serving as a garrison of protection against those temptations. And that protection is not because of anything that we've done. We haven't built it ourselves. It's because of the faith that we have and can have and need to have in God. That's where that strength and that garrison is coming from. It's because of him that we are safe and saved for eternity. And so that promise of the garrison, that strengthens our hope. That is a reason for standing now, if I jump ahead a little bit, go, go to verses 10 and 11. Peter's referring to the prophets of old who searched intently and with great care for what the coming of the Messiah would look like and would hold. They were given visions. God spoke to them. And so they listened to God's calling, and they proclaimed the glory, the salvation that was to come. Even though they didn't understand what, and how that was necessarily going to be played out. But they were proclaiming that for us. Uh, in Daniel 7, verses 15 and 16, we read Daniel writing, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. But then if we look later in uh, Daniel 12, in verse 8, Daniel says this, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? So there's, there's still not that understanding. But there, there's revelation, but not necessarily a full understanding. 
But there's that promise. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, and this will be a very common set of scriptures that we've read numerous times. Isaiah wrote, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did Isaiah have any idea of what the what Golgotha held? I don't think so. Isaiah 9, 2, and then verses 6 through 7. Look at what the glory then is. So, so if... If Isaiah is looking at the pain, not fully understanding that, but he also sees the glory. I, I, I'm not sure he understands all of that as well, but here's, here's what Isaiah was professing. In verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There's Jesus, the light of the world. And if we continue verses 6 and 7, says, for us, or to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his, people, or on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, so prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, to Jesus' teachings, the crucifixion, his resurrection, and, and even Jesus' own references to returning to the Father, Daniel and Isaiah were speaking about those. Other prophets were speaking about those things. So there was hope in the words of the prophets from long ago. Hope for the Jewish people. Hope for the Gentiles, which is us. The Enduring Word website made this comment on the prophecies of old. They said, one may only imagine how excited Isaiah would have been to read the Gospel of John. The Old Testament prophets knew so much, yet much was hidden from them. Yet they had hope. They saw that hope. And so we have so much more information, so much more perspective than what Isaiah had. And yet even our own understanding is limited. We still need to have the same type of hope and trust and faith that the prophets had. So let me go back to verses 8 and 9. I kind of skipped over that. Verses 8 and 9 from what Corey read says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, again, this is Peter writing. And so Peter and the rest of the disciples, they had the opportunity to walk with Jesus for three years. They heard his teachings. They saw the miracles. They experienced all that firsthand. They were right there 
beside him, with him. And so those that Peter was writing to, remember he was writing to those, <coughs> excuse me, in northern Turkey. And he was also writing to us in North America, to those in South America, in Australia. Anyone who has not seen Jesus face to face, but we believe in him. And so what do we promise as we go through there? Again, going back to verses 8 and 9, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and there's three parts here, you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. That's available right here, right now. You are receiving the end result of your faith. Heaven come to earth. But our thoughts is also still on the eternal heaven location, living for eternity. You are receiving the salvation of your souls. That trust, that faith, that's where our hope lies. And so hope has become more real, more evident, more personable, and personal in Jesus Christ. And so our hope is strengthened because of what the prophecies were, what was foretold, and also now what they're fulfilled. There's hope with that. And so everything I've referred to thus far is encouraging, uplifting, wonderful, joyful, and definitely hopeful. And if you notice, I, I haven't referred to verses 6 and 7 yet. If you go back to verses 6 and 7, those are the verses in here that refer to suffering, grief, and trials. Needing to prove something, refining something. And those phrases are definitely not considered incredibly encouraging or filled with hope. Um, suffering, grief, and trials is not anything that we wish on ourselves or anybody else. Proving something requires work, requires organization, requires some thought. And refining suggests a purification, an adjustment, and definitely possible discomfort, changes that we need to make. And so going back to that, you know, that question that I referred to, why? In looking at these verses, why will and why must trials come? Why and how do I endure? And why do I stand firm? So the, the brief answers to those two. Trials come to test our faith. We endure and we stand firm because Jesus did. And he showed us how to do that. Uh, concerning the testing of faith through trials, Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, it is the honor of faith to be tried. Uh, I'll start that again. It is the honor of faith to be tried. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I have never had to believe under difficulties. Who knows whether thou hast any faith? David Guzik um, writes with the enduring word, and he identifies um, three important purposes of faith being tested. It says, faith is tested to show that it is sincere faith, 
or true faith. Faith is tested to show the strength of faith. Faith is tested to purify it, to burn away the rubbish from the gold that faith is. So I also want to give just a couple of kind of earthly applications and thoughts of what happens with this process of being tested or not being tested. Astronauts. When astronauts go up into outer space due to the absence of gravity over a 5 to 11 day space flight, they will lose roughly 20% of their muscle mass. They become weak because there's no gravity to provide tension. Astronauts that go to work on the International Space Station they will spend up to six months in that setting with weightlessness. They spend two to two and a half hours going through exercises, creating tension so that they can carry out things that they will need to do. And part of the reasoning that was given here is when these astronauts are coming back onto Earth, if there is an emergency situation that occurs on that re-entry, they need muscle mass to be able to save themselves in that re-entry. But without that gravity and that tension, they lose strength. If you ever would go to a basketball practice, you will see dribbling drills to improve hand-eye coordination and dribbling skills. You'll see passing drills, you'll see shooting drills all these practices, and many of those are done with no defense, working on skills. But then where does the real test come? It comes in the game. Defenders that you've got to combat. Defenders that will not make it easy to dribble, to pass, to shoot. Major League Baseball. If you go to batting practice and you have an opportunity to watch that, anymore, most of the batting practices actually occur in the tunnels underneath. And they don't do it live out on the field so much anymore. But coaches will throw 60 to 70 mile an hour for those. Major league pitchers will not throw 60 to 70 mile an hour. They're throwing 90 to 100. That's the test. And so if we recognize the need to combat muscle atrophy in space and we recognize that an athletic game of competition is different than just the drills in practice, then shouldn't we prepare ourselves and shouldn't we expect to be tested within our walk of faith? To strengthen it, to verify it, to experience faith. Long, easy episodes of life can make us complacent and lazy and weak. We can begin to believe that we have it all under control. And we might begin to have more trust and faith in ourselves, our skills, our talents, than in God. And challenges in life will refine us. They will reveal areas where we may need to focus or refocus our faith differently. 
Now, unlike the sports performances where the individual's talents and skills are on display, and if the player performs well, they get the award. They get the MVP, they get the all-star claim, whatever it may be. Um, verse 7, okay, th this is different. It's not the award that I'm gaining. The proven genuineness of your faith results in praise, glory, and honor of not the player, not the person, but the revelation of Jesus Christ in the life of the individual. We're to be examples of Christ's love for him to be receiving the glory. James 1 uh, two through four says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And that'd be the honor that Spurgeon was referring to. Consider it pure joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And, and again, it's not our strength in where, where we find success. It is through Christ. He's the one who strengthens us. We are not the ones to be receiving the glory and praise. Our faith is, a result, is to result in praise, glory, and honor of him. So let him be revealed in how we live out our faith, how we stand firm. And as to times when Jesus stood firm, we, we just celebrated Resurrection Sunday at the end of Holy Week. And, and, and in that time frame, we, we remembered all the times within that week where Jesus suffered. He sweated drops of blood as he prayed in the garden. He was questioned and ridiculed by the Sanhedrin. He appeared under trial before Pilate. Soldiers mocked beat him and God turned his back on him Jesus was forsaken for our sake for cleansing us but Jesus stood firm taking the humiliation taking the pain for us he stood firm because of his love for us but I'm also going to go back a little bit further Jesus was not just standing firm on holy week he had been standing firm for a long time. So a couple of references, eight references, to Jesus standing firm throughout his ministry. So quick uh, just description of these. Luke 14, Jesus was rejected by his hometown. After speaking truth in the synagogue, they took him out to a cliff to throw him over the edge. That's persecution. You are hated. Matthew 12, after healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Pharisees plotted to kill him. John 5, upon healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, the leaders vowed to kill him. John 8, in proclaiming himself as the son of God, they actually picked up stones to stone him. John 10, refers to another organized attempt to stone Jesus for teaching and preaching the truth. John 11, after raising Lazarus from the dead, there was a full discussion 
within the Sanhedrin in a plot to take Jesus' life. Mark 11, when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, the money changers, chiefs, chief priests and teachers of law sought to kill him. And finally, Matthew 21, when Jesus spoke of the rejected cornerstone, Pharisees were listening, and they knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. He was talking about them. They were the ones that rejected him. They plotted to kill him. So it wasn't just Holy Week where Jesus was suffering. Jesus was being plotted against to kill him throughout his entire ministry. But yet Jesus continued to preach, teach the truth, showing love, patience, forgiveness. He continued to do what the Father had sent him down on earth to do. And so in each of the stories within there, Jesus already knew what he needed to endure here on earth. He already knew leaders were not going to like him. He knew the leaders were planning to kill him. But think back to Christmas. Wasn't Herod trying to kill Jesus even then? So it wasn't just during Jesus' ministry. Immediately from when he was born, people were trying to kill Jesus. But I also want you to think, you know, in in my mind, Jesus knew of what the cross would be. But he also knew what the end result would be, eternity. Zach Williams sings a song called Heart of God. And there's a phrase in there, and I think I've even referred to that uh, up here before. It says, in referring to Jesus and God, he's not sitting there shaking his head, wishing he never went to that cross. He knew of the cross. But Jesus stood firm in his commitment to God and to you. He knew what the cross was going to be. He knew what that week leading up to the cross was going to be. But the cross was not his focus. He knew what needed to happen. And what Jesus was doing was he was looking past the cross. He looked past the pain and the suffering. And he knew of the empty tomb. He knew the victory to be gained. And he saw you and he saw me in eternity. And so that focus was for eternity, understanding and knowing the pain that it would take. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And so I want to parallel that in adopting our series theme. We stand firm because he stood firm for us. So in, in closing i got a couple pictures I want to show you. Many times we envision standing firm as being best shown, displayed as a warrior. So here's a warrior. Armor, standing guard, prepared for battle, confrontational. Ready to stand firm. And another phrase that we hear sometimes is stand in the gap. 
but stand firm. And I would classify this view as bold, loud, and obvious, and public display of standing firm. And there are times when this is exactly what we need to be ready to do. This is what standing firm would be. Armed and ready with the full armor of God. I've got three other pictures here where I think this is standing firm also. That's standing firm. Go to the next one. That's standing firm. One more. That's standing firm. Where do our kids learn to do that? By watching you stand firm. I believe standing firm can be considered a process. It's not just a single individual isolated act. We need to start on our knees in prayer, surrendering ourselves to God and his will. Preparation for the day, preparation for anything begins right there on our knees, whether literally or figuratively. You can pray in your car. Don't close your eyes, but you can pray while you drive. You can pray in the middle of a conversation. You can pray in the middle of a work day. Prayer provides strength and wisdom to stand firm. And this last picture I want to show is the current uh, cover for our sermon series. Gwen found this when we were working on uh, creating the brochure for this. And, and for me, this, this is perfect. This, this is a bit of where I can envision myself on a daily basis within the challenge and hopefully the success of standing firm. So here, here's a bit of what I see with this. Here's a climber standing on top of a solid rock. Looking reflectively back into the sunset, one foot relaxed upon the other. Tired, but not beaten down from the climb, from whatever the process in the day was. The daily walk, the struggle, the process of the journey, having relied upon God and his strength, one step at a time. Confident and assured in the path taken to get there. But not taking that as a final resting place and a stopping place. Knowing what the challenge was worth it, but, and here's where I think it's the, the thing that we need to be ready to do. Do it all over again. Wherever and whenever God calls. And if it's that process of standing firm five different times through the day, <laughs> I'm ready to do that. We're called to stand firm at all moments throughout our days. And it's not our own strength upon which we stand. It's a solid rock that we're standing upon every step of the way. So may God empower and bless us as we stand firm step by step by step.